Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. In today's episode, we are joined by University of Montana President Seth Bodner. He shares his unique career journey and addresses critical issues institutions are facing to keep students on track. Hello and welcome once again to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Ed Bennett. I'm a managing director here and I spend most of our time, my time thinking about student success, uh, the ways that students tick and ways institutions will support students now and, and really into the future as they're pursuing college degrees. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about that today, uh, but we're gonna go even a little bit broader than that because today we have the very good fortune of having a guest on the podcast who is here to share a bit about his unique journey from West Point to Oxford, to being a Green Beret, to back to West Point, and then through the executive ranks at GE, and now finally as the president of the University of Montana. Uh, so join me in welcoming Seth Bodner to Office Hours. Hey, Ed, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sure you must get asked this a lot uh, to tell your story all the time, but I think it bears repeating here to the extent that your military and corporate careers must have helped prepare you in many ways for a leadership role, or really in any endeavor. Uh, but I wonder about the adjustments you've made, uh, you had to make going through this unique journey that you had uh, through the military, through academia, through corporate America, uh, and now where you are. So, so just take me back to, you know, back all the way back to Westport, even further back if you want to go, and tell us a little bit about your your journey and your biography and how it's shaped you. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, I've had a a a, a bit of a different background, perhaps, than uh, more traditional university presidents, which uh, which of course presents challenges, presents opportunities. But um, you know, I've been very lucky uh, throughout my career to have a lot of opportunities, both to practice leadership and also to learn from others. You know, I uh, I, I tell a a story every year to on the first day of orientation to our freshmen. Um, and I tell them the story because I know a lot of them are nervous. A lot of them are feeling like, hey, I'm not cut out for this. Um, and, uh, and and I want to make them feel like, hey, that's not abnormal. And, and I tell them about my first day at West Point. Uh, and I tell them that I remember absolutely nothing about that day except for two things. And um, one is I remember that I got a tuberculosis test, which you're like, why would you remember that? It's a sort of an odd thing to remember. But uh, but I tell them uh, I remember it because, you know, it's that test. They, they give you a little prick in, in your forearm and they say, you know, come back in three days and we'll tell you the results or two days, whatever it is. And and I remember it because I remember distinctly that evening saying a prayer and saying, oh, please, God, let this test come back positive so I can go home because uh, because I disliked it so much. Uh, and I and I wanted to wanted to get out of there. And I said to our freshman here, like, so if, if you're having a rough time, it's OK, it will get better. Um, but the other thing I remember is that uh, they teach you the, the definition of leadership. And and ultimately, uh, that's what West Point is. West Point's a, a leadership academy. It's a it's a liberal arts university with uh, with a with a huge leadership curriculum. And and for me, you know, I've I've realized over the course of my career that of course leadership is contextual, right? It matters, right? There's some differences and nuances in leadership, whether you're in the military, whether you're in the private sector, whether you're in a university, but there are some common themes. 
Uh, and, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that, uh, you know, a leader's job at the end of the day is to work to get their organization, no matter how big of it, it is, aligned on a common vision, number one. Um, number two, to, to set the conditions for your team to succeed. Uh, and then number three, to, to make sure they have the support in place uh, that they need and that you get out of the way and let them do their job. Uh, and, and I found when you can do that as a leader, um, again, whether it's leading a, a global software business, like I did at GE, whether it's leading a, a special forces team or a university, you know, those are some common themes of, of, of leadership that, uh, I think all successful leaders that I've watched over my career, uh, have embraced and, uh, and, and, Certainly, things that I try to practice uh, here here at UM and and in my previous uh, uh, opportunities to lead. One of the things I've always enjoyed about our conversations, and also just knowing a little bit about your background vis-a-vis other college presidents that I run into, and you talk to quite a few. Um, you do have a unique background in that regard. Um, there are a few other presidents out there like you, but not a ton. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about maybe. I guess we kind of got the advantages that you just brought there in terms of leadership training. What were maybe some of the disadvantages that uh, you would have brought to the job, or you did bring to the job, really? Yeah. Uh, that you know maybe a you know someone who traditionally came up through the academic ranks wouldn't be feeling. Yeah, I mean, look, this these are tough jobs. Uh, you know, a uh, another leader with some military experience who had a, a dose of higher ed leadership, uh, obviously, is. Uh, uh, you know, Bill McRaven has served as chancellor down at the University of uh, Texas, Texas, and I think very famously in higher ed circles said that uh, at the president of a, of a university is the toughest job in the country. And this is coming from a, a four-star admiral, former Navy SEAL, who'd led all special operations for the U.S. military prior to uh, to serving uh, as, as in a leadership role in higher ed. So it, it, it's certainly a... Um, a difficult role, you know, whether it's the hardest job in the country, I don't know, I might vote for uh, uh, NICU pediatric nurse, oh, right, yeah. the neonative intensive care unit being a nurse there, perhaps a little tougher, but, uh, but, but, you know, toughest or not, it, it's a challenging job. And I think, uh, in, in many ways, it's because you have such a diverse group of stakeholders, you know, from not just your students, but but faculty, um, your alumni and and in a public university, you have uh, legislators, you have uh, the governor, you have voters, and and that's I you know the the one group of stakeholders I haven't even mentioned is is your board right who is the one that that has responsibility uh, for for hiring and and firing university presidents. So you have all these different stakeholders. Um, all of them who, frankly, could make your job really difficult or make it impossible for you to do your job. Um, and they often have competing uh, or divergent priorities. And so, you know, you have uh, some serious goal complexity when leading a public university. And I think um, that's one of the things that, that I've had to adapt to. Um, you know, in the military, yeah, you have complex missions, but but you often have better alignment on what's the goal, right? Leading a, a, a private company or a public company, you have shareholders, you have, you have, uh, you have goals that, that are, I think, widely understood. And I think, you know, in, in higher ed with different groups of, of stakeholders, they all have different interests. And, and I think you really have to work um, deliberately 
to engage those different groups of stakeholders, understand what's common about um, their their interests, what's common about their objectives, and and really try to 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 work to crystallize the essence of what that university's uh, there to do. And for us at the University of Montana, it's it, it's really been aligning uh, around the summary of our university's mission in, in just two words. And those two words are uh, inclusive prosperity and happy to dig into more of that. But I think that's a, been a challenge. I think it's a challenge for all university leaders. Uh, I think for somebody like me who, yeah, I served on faculty at West Point, but I am not uh, an academic. And, uh, and I, I have to be very respectful and mindful of, of that when working with faculty in particular. And, um, and and again, doesn't mean that I can't be an effective leader, but it, it means that I have to uh, to recognize, um, you know, my my non-academic background, recognize there are many things that I don't know um, and uh, work to build a team around me that complements not just my strengths, but, but my weaknesses. And I think, again, that's true of any leader. But but for somebody like me coming in with a less traditional background, I think I've had to be more mindful of that. I think it served me well. I think it's actually been an advantage for me, but uh, but but it's certainly something that I've have to uh, I've, I've had to really be be intentional about. Yeah, I, I often observe the sort of antagonistic relationship between the faculty and the administration at many institutions. Not all institutions, of course, um, but a lot of that can be. Uh, kind of summarized up a little bit in a, well, we could break through this if we had a better set of understanding. And I really appreciate the vulnerability that you show there in the sense of, hey, I actually don't know the answer to this. I don't know your lives very well. Tell me about that so that I can, uh, you know, help serve you better in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to come back to the inclusive prosperity thing in just a moment, but um, tell me a little bit first about kind of the journey as you were first appointed. I know there's a little bit of an unusual story there. And then tell me about some of those early days. Um, what were the expectations placed on you and some long and short-term goals? Yeah, I mean, I, I joined a university that had been in, uh, experienced a pretty substantial uh, enrollment decline uh, over the preceding years. Uh, some real challenges. I came into uh, a team uh, after there was an interim leader for a year. We had uh, interim leaders in the president position, we had an interim provost, we had an interim uh, vice president for administration and finance. So really, you know, your your three kind of top roles, um, you you had interim leadership and and a change in leadership in our enrollment lead. So so really, the 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 the, the majority of the of the leadership team was interim. Um, and so I think first step was again building that that immediate leadership team. But then starting to to bring the rest of the university along, you know, prior to my arrival, I think our university community had some had some really good strategic planning um, that that had pointed us in a common direction. But I think, like many institutions, both within higher ed and elsewhere, we didn't have a strong mechanism for moving and, and I, what I'd say operationalizing a vision and and tracking progress. So you know, as I came on board. My goal was just to stabilize the institution and begin to make steady, tangible progress. And so, you know, we took what had been a, a strategic vision and, and we really distilled that, that what I call strategic thinking work um, into five priorities for action. 
And those were named uh, very intentionally that said, look, what we're going to do is focus on making steady, tangible progress. Uh, And we aligned around those five priorities for action. We've, we've built that out over the, over the, the, the five-year period that I've been here and and eventually have created what we now have as a strategic operating rhythm that, uh, that says, look, we as a university aren't going to be a university that, that sets a, every seven or eight years does this a strategic plan that is static sits on a shelf. We're going to, we're going to align on a vision. We're going to have priorities, but each year we're going to look at those and we're going to tweak them as necessary. And each year we're going to have a really clear playbook for the year ahead um, that distills those priorities into uh, uh, objectives and then specific projects to help us move forward. And so I think we've, uh, We've really spent the time to build what I what what you might call the operating software of the organization. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, you can really feel uh, both the assets you're bringing from the military background and the corporate background to that kind of um, short cycle strategic vision, if you will, where you keep coming back, revise, revise, revise. Uh, and it's not something I you know always hear about other schools doing. It's more often what you describe. We have a strategic plan, and then we just try to follow it for the next five years and maybe it doesn't work. So maybe it doesn't. And then we redo it again uh, in the future. So I love that leadership style that you're bringing there. Is there one thing from that work that you would call it as a really signature achievement? Like, Hey, we're really, really proud of this. Uh, that's in place. And then the other side of that question is, you know, is there something that is, you know, kind of a wall that you're running into that's a frustration that you can't uh, quite make it through yet, or you're still, you know, the challenge that's there, the hill that's still there to climb. Yeah. Well, look, I think, uh, you know, all achievements and all challenges uh, are shared, right? So as I think about achievements that we've made over the past five years, um, those are, those are team achievements. And, uh, and so I would say if there's one thing that, that I'm proud of, it's, it's been uh, building a team and identifying, uh, uh, just some really strong leaders at this university to move us forward. And, and we've made some really good progress. Um, you know, we just announced our uh, enrollment this week uh, for the fall of, of 2023. And uh, you know, it's the largest year over year increase in enrollment since 2009, you know, in the midst of the, of the financial crisis when uh, college enrollment nationally was, was going up. And so in the context of a pretty substantial national decline right now, um, that level increase is, is substantial. Um, and, uh, and that's really exciting. And I, and I think, you know, key to that, uh, I'm really proud of the way that our team has not just improved in recruiting students to come to UM, but helping them succeed. Uh, we also recorded our single, uh, actually our, our, our best retention rate uh, in the university's history. Uh, our first to second year retention rate is the highest on record this year. Um, substantial improvement there. And we're doing a much better job of, uh, of of serving student populations that are very important to this university. We have a 30, nearly a 30% increase in the number of Native American students uh, here at the university over the past five years. Um, significant. I mean, last fall, we're still working through the data, but as of last fall, our retention rate among Native students is up 14 percentage points. Um, and then, uh, of course, we're in our, we we Last year, we achieved Research One status, uh, so that was a, de- a goal decades in the making, and our research expenditures are up nearly 55% over the past five years. Um, 
we're in the largest infrastructure refresh in the university's history. And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, we don't pay too much attention to rankings, frankly, but, uh, but one of the things we were, we were surprised at on the one hand, but not on the other is that, uh, you know, the Washington monthly identified university of Montana for the second year in a row as the number one uh, university in the country for community and national service, which just kind of, I think is a, is a nice recognition of this community's and this university's focus on service and impact. So a lot of good things happening here at UM and, and a lot we have uh, to be excited about a lot of challenges we have. Um, now on the challenge side, I think, we are still wrestling with how do we adapt our curricula? How, you know, not just our general education, but each of our majors um, to prepare students uh, really uh, effectively for the world they're entering. We just had a two hour session with our university leadership council last week on generative AI, right? And, and not just how do we use AI to be more efficient as a university or how do we enable uh, students or, or ensure that students are still learning. But I think the tougher question is, how do we need to adapt what we're teaching to prepare students to thrive in a world in which generative AI is, is prevalent? And those are harder questions that I think we're wrestling with as a society. We're certainly wrestling with that as a university. And we're not done. We're not done wrestling, but uh, but we haven't solved that one, of course. And so a lot that we still need to work through. Yeah, I've been having a lot of conversations with uh, different schools about the coming math challenge that we see emerging through K-12, this unfinished learning uh, or learning loss, I prefer unfinished learning as a term, to be honest, uh, that's coming our way based on, you know, stuff that students didn't learn during the pandemic, and it's going to continue on. That's going to affect our ability to teach STEM programs in a traditional way, and it's going to force an evolution right there. Um, and that, of course, links into some of the higher tech things that you're talking about uh, in regards. So, you know, I think we can foresee some continuous evolution going on in this regard. So it's really encouraging to hear you focused on that. It's also really encouraging to hear all those fantastic numbers on enrollment retention uh, and uh, the sort of, you know, expansion of the institution, if you will. You truly are gaining some notoriety that is well-deserved. I want to circle back a little bit to the one thing you said there about uh, service to your community. And I'm interpreting community to be the broadest possible or narrowest possible communities. It's the people that you're around. Uh, the Sort of the occasion by which this podcast came to be was an article, an op-ed that you wrote in the Washington Post uh, this past spring uh, that really gets to one of the, the heart of one of the issues that we are uh, working on quite a bit at EAB and frankly is across the higher education landscape. Uh, what we call non-consumption. Uh, so students who in the past may have chosen to go to college, but are not. And we've seen that kind of uh, uh, the proportion of high school graduates that do even enroll in college straight out shrink over the last few, well, really the last decade. Uh, and of course, during the pandemic, um, you know, even more so. Uh, so, you know, there's sort of a declining popularity, if you will, in college in general. Um, so why are you convinced that not only do these declining college rates um, make us less competitive as a country? This was one of the big things that you put forward in that op-ed um, and also potentially is a national security risk, which is a, you know an obvious thing that you would have brought from your background that might not be so obvious to all of our listeners. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is where I go back to. Uh... You know, my time when when I spent as a as, as a faculty member, I, I taught economics and you look at the the long term 
long-term growth of a country, right? There's only a few things that, uh, that determine that, right? And it's obviously physical capital, uh, business formation, of course, uh, and kind of the regulatory environment, but then human capital. And human capital is a function, of course, the number, but the education level, right? How skilled is, is your workforce? And there are studies that show that every additional year of schooling for the adult population raises a country's per capita GDP by 9 to 10%, which would tell you the inverse of that is true as well. And so if we, the, and the stats here are, are, are pretty frightening. Um, 2016, 70% of uh, high school grads went on to higher education. Um, last fall, and the data isn't out for the fall of 23, but last year that had dropped to 62%. That's a lot of high school students that aren't going on to uh, get further education. And, and again, that's not to say that you can't have a good life without a college degree. You can't. There are many pathways to prosperity in this country. And I, I want to be very, very clear that this isn't saying everybody needs to go to college, but I would argue, and I think the, 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 the data would support that if we hope to be competitive globally as a country, not just militarily, but from an economic standpoint, um, college attainment uh, is very important. And, and you're seeing our competitors uh, pass us by. Uh, in terms of their rates of uh, of college attainment, and so um, we're we are. I am very worried about the future of this country and the 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 country that will pass along to our kids, and whether or not they'll be able to enjoy the same standard of living that we have um, with uh, as a country a far lower rate of uh, of educational attainment. I mean the stats are are troubling, right? At the turn of the 21st century, I think we were we were fourth or fifth among OECD nations in terms of educational attainment. Um by 2021 we were 12th, we're we're falling, right? And uh, as I shared in that article, um our competitors globally are not saying to their young people don't get an education. Mm -hmm. right? Uh and you're hearing that from too many leaders in this country. And I, I think that will have long-term detrimental impacts. Now that's, to be clear, that's not to say that higher ed doesn't have to adapt. We do, we, we absolutely have to adapt. We have to listen to these frustrations, take them seriously and find ways to adapt. Um, but I, at the same time, we as a country, um, we devalue education at our peril. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you uh, on all these points and it's, you know, I'm someone who thinks a little bit longer term, you know, I might be thinking about 2035 or even 2040, you know, what does the world look like th there? You and I were both in our 40s and you're the relatively young college president as college residents go. So you'll be in, you'll be alive in this world, hopefully, uh, <laughs> at that point where we go to. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of in this for ourselves too. We're trying to build the country that we want to see for our future, as well as for the future of everybody who's maybe a little bit younger than us, your current students and your own kids and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to think about it that way rather than I think what a lot of people think about is kind of like just, well, one or two years out or maybe that five-year strategic plan. You know, there's a longer view that you can take about the role that we're playing uh, in supporting our large community of the United States in this regard. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's about more than just economic competitiveness. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Harry Truman once said, knowledge is not only key to power, it is the citadel of human freedom. Hmm. And 
so when when we are seeing a populace that that is has growing levels of distrust of education um and we see uh leaders i think irresponsibly dissuading people from pursuing education we're seeing uh uh some really i think long-term threats to 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 people's freedom in this country as well and and that's a that's a big statement um but i i think it is that big of uh of a, of a crisis that, that we need to, we need to lean into, um, higher education has been, and it needs to continue to be an engine, an engine of social mobility. Um, but, uh, but I think when we're encouraging people to, to, to avoid education, we're doing those individuals a disservice and we're doing this country a disservice. Yeah, I did, um, uh, uh, sort of a little bit of work with the, uh, report that was done by the Post-Secondary Value Commission. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but that came out, I think it was in 2020, based on about two years of work. Um, there was an outrigger report done by the uh, uh, Georgetown uh, Center uh, for Education Workforce that looked at kind of all the studies that have ever been done relating either correlation or causation of college degrees and good stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Too often we talk about this, and well, we do talk about this all the time, maybe not too often, go to college, you'll make more money in your life or you'll advance your career. And that's a, a narrative that people are very comfortable and familiar with. But I was super interested in that report was also the economic benefit to the overall country, which you've touched on right there. We grow our GDP tax base and of course, reduce public expenditures um, that you know we maybe wouldn't have to expend if folks had um, you know access to that affluence that that we're talking about. Then the yeah, also- I mean, to use an economic term, it's a- it's a positive ex- there are positive externalities associated yeah. with education. There are benefits enjoyed by people other than the specific consumer of, yeah. of higher ed. And, and we all benefit when more people uh have have higher degrees of educational attainment. Yeah, and they went into that too, where they talked about some of the harder to quantify things. Mm-hmm. Happiness, strong families, you know, participation in democracy, so on and so forth. There's this whole long list of kind of good things for society, good things for people and their families and their communities, their neighbors, you know, that come along with having a more educated population. It was really meaningful for me to see that all laid out and collected there. And it really uh, drove that in. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, why that perception. You've come back to it a couple of times uh, where we're, you know, sort of discouraging folks from pursuing education or at least creating a perception that this isn't a worthwhile thing for them. Um, so let's dig into that a little bit. Why do you think these perceptions of the value of higher education are declining? And um, you know, what was that? How how does that relate to the motivation to write the op-ed that you wrote? Yeah, look, I, I think, and I want to be really clear about this: higher ed's not perfect. And I, I think any president that tells you we are uh, isn't being honest with themselves, right? And I think there are very few that that would say they are. And I think, you know, obviously the the questions around cost. And uh, and student debt. I mean, we've seen we've seen um, tuition rates rise. I mean, that's a function on the public side of a of a four decade long trend of declining support for for public higher ed. You know, which here in the Montana University system, it used to be that about seventy six percent of the cost of a I mean, thirty years ago, if you go back to hit the rewind button, go back to the to the nineties. When you and I were making college decisions, about seventy-six percent of the cost of a 
of a student's uh, education was was funded by the state. Today, that's about in in the forties, forty percent ish. Um, so we've seen the shifting of the burden uh, from kind of the the broader uh, collective to the individual. Um, we've also seen costs in many ways escalate at higher rates than uh, than inflation, and that that needs to be reined in. You know, we have mm-hmm. to address the cost challenges in higher ed. I uh, I do think there are some misperceptions that people have about levels of of debt and cost. Um, uh, you look at the 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 University of Montana um, for a uh, for a resident student here at, at the University of Montana. Our full year tuition and fees is about eight thousand um, dollars. And uh, and I'm not saying that's not that's not nothing, but thirty six percent of our students graduate with zero debt. Thirty six percent. Um, and if you look at the average loan amount among our graduates, so if you average the debt across all graduates, it's uh, it's fifteen thousand seven hundred dollars. Uh, and when you look at the average annual wage premium for a new college grad above and beyond a, a high school grad, it's about a, a wage premium of twenty two thousand dollars, meaning, you know, you'll on average make twenty two thousand dollars a year more than you would have without a college degree. So uh, and over your lifetime, I think most estimates say that uh, the lifetime earnings benefit of a college degree is about one point two million dollars. So if you if you take those numbers in context, so you incur, and this is average, right? There's outliers on both ends, but on average, you incur fifteen thousand dollars of debt to give get a degree that enables you to make twenty two thousand dollars more per year and one point two million dollars more over your lifetime. That's a pretty good investment, but that's at UM, right? Uh, when we start talking about schools charging literally ten times as much as we charge. That value calculation uh, could flip the other way, and I think that's one of the challenges and, and frustrations, frankly, is that we see schools like the University of Montana, where we fight and scratch and claw to keep our education as affordable and as accessible as possible, being painted with the same brush as universities that are literally charging ten times the amount that we are charging, and I think that's a real um, that's a that's a real disservice. And I think it's a real challenge. So I uh, can't let you go uh, without talking a little bit about another big thing that's happened across the course of this summer uh, regarding to why students might perceive that college really isn't the place for them. Um, and here I'm specifically talking about students of color. Uh, so the recent SCOTUS decision, which eliminated affirmative action and admissions decisions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what Montana is doing to address both equity gaps and also that specific decision uh, in terms of improving access and supporting historically underserved students, which will pretend it's going to be a lot of Native students. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of discussion, obviously, and and, and understandably and, and rightfully so around the, the decision around affirmative action. Um, but, you know, that decision does not directly impact the University of Montana in the ways that it obviously does small selective schools. Um, you know, our, our doors are already wide open. You know, we're an institution that's committed to access. Uh, and, and so our mission is to is not to spend time and energy deciding who we're going to let in. 
right? Our job is to make sure, and when I talk about inclusive prosperity, I, I that means our job is to ensure that every single member of our community, regardless of where you come from, who your parents were, who you love, what you look like, how much money you have, that, that every single member of our community is a, is able to achieve their unique full potential. Um, and so our job is, again, to spend our time ensuring we make sure that everyone who can come through our doors is successful. Now, we do focus on on certain groups, as I as I mentioned, um, we are a university, and that uh, uh, we acknowledge always that this university sits on the traditional territories of Indigenous peoples. Um, that's very important to us, um, and uh, our, we've put a big focus on uh, making UM more accessible to Native American students. And you've seen a, a, a an increase of more than 25% in our native enrollment just over the past five years and significant increases in retention rates. Uh, we've also noticed that, you know, while $8,000 a year for a family making $150,000 makes the University of Montana one of the best bargains in the country, for those who, at the lower end of the income spectral, spectrum, excuse me, that is still a, 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 a tall task. And so we developed and launched something last year called the Grizzly Promise. And the Grizzly Promise, we are the Montana Grizzlies. Uh, the Grizzly Promise is a program we launched that guarantees that any Montanan coming from a family making $50,000 or less can attend UM tuition free. And we do that through a mix of uh, obviously federal aid, but institutional and donor support. Again, to make this a university that is accessible to people uh, at all ends of the uh, of the income spectrum. So I really want to thank you. This has been a tremendous conversation. You and I can talk for a long time, I'm sure, without getting bored. Uh, but want to be respectful of your time so you can go back to doing all that great work that you've been talking about this time. Do you want to ask just one more question before we go? Um, and if you were to maybe share one piece of advice to other higher education leaders uh, as they go about their work at a UM or a completely different kind of school, um, what might you what might you share with them uh, that you like them to take to heart uh, and incorporate in their own work? Well, look, I uh, I am hesitant to offer advice because I'm still learning things as a university president every single day. So uh, whenever people ask me advice, I always want to say, well, I want some from you, too. Um, but, you know, what what I'm really trying to do here at the University of Montana, and I think uh, good university presidents are doing this all across the country. But I, I think, you know, we, we have these very diverse um, constituencies to serve. Um, but what I'm always focused on is how do we bring this, these, these questions back to the heart of the issue, which is our student success. What do our students need to succeed, not just in the workplace, but in their lives and in their careers as engaged citizens uh, in this country. And for me, as we bring it back to that question, um, you get to better answers, right? You get to alignment between faculty, between students, between regents, between legislators. So, so always trying to bring people back to uh, this idea of placing student success at the center of everything that we do. When we do that, and when we do it genuinely, when we do it transparently, uh, and when we work to, to, to tell our story of the ways we're doing that well. Um, I think we not only serve our students better, I think we renew the trust 
of uh, of the public. We uh, and and we we again position this uh, this country for success over the long run. That's a great spot for us to conclude the podcast right here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all the insights that you shared uh, and the stories you told. Um, always think it's very interesting to hear your perspective on things and what you're doing. And of course, the great successes at uh, UM that you've achieved in a relatively short period of time, uh, I hope will serve as a model for, for other institutions uh, that are also trying to achieve some of these other great things. So thank you again, uh, once again, for your time. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I suppose. All right. Well, thanks, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to be uh, a part of a, a collaborative uh, and really important discussion. So I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week where our guests will explore the future of annual giving in higher education.